Cool. All right, well, we have been in a series, as you know, that we've called Signs. How do you know when the Gospels got a grip on your money? So if you just grab your notes and grab your pens, how do you know that the Gospel has got a grip on your money? Or another way of asking that question that we've been looking at is how do you know when God's changing your life? How do you know when God's really moving in you? Now, one of the most obvious ways that you will know God is changing your life is you're going to see that you change in how you relate to your money and your possessions. You say, well, how do you know? Well, because Jesus said where your treasure is, your possessions, your treasure, your money, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He said there is a direct link, a direct nerve that goes from the heart to the wallet. For some of us, it's the most sensitive nerve in our body. But God said it is there. And so if your life gets radically changed by Jesus, it will have an effect on how you use your resources. Now, we've been looking at the characteristics of the early church. Particularly, we have been looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. And, and we've been noticing some patterns or some characteristics that are really unique to Christians. And one of those things that we begin to notice is that in the life of a Christian, there begins to be sparked a remarkable, tremendous kind of generosity. As you have been born again, you find yourself becoming a gracious giver. And here's how it works. Let's just jump right in. If you just write this down, this is how it works. God gives you his riches, which then enables you and encourages you and empowers you to give your riches. And what you find is that grace itself provokes a release within you that you don't hold on to things quite so tightly because you have internalized the gospel and it begins to sink into your heart. In fact, the scripture that was just read a few moments ago, you'll notice it says some very specific things. It says, and after they, what? Prayed. After they prayed or connected with God, the place that they were meeting was shaken. Now, that's appropriate that it was shaken. Do you know that's a term that's used often when God appears in a significant way is that it says God shook that place. You actually see this in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it's a reference to the glory of God coming down on somebody's life and profoundly impacting. It's what we call the weight of God's glory his magnitude or his weight, and it begins to change your life. Well, it's appropriate, shaken, because that's kind of what God has to do. He has to shake you up. And it says they were all filled with the Spirit, and therefore they spoke the word of God boldly. They had this experience of grace. And so they begin to speak God's words as they were filled with God. And what happens in this moment, friends, is that you realize that you were a sinner, what happens in this moment is you realize that you are profoundly broken. How can you get into the presence of God and not realize you're broken? How could you get into the presence of perfection and not see how crooked you are? One of the signs that you have been moved by God is that you will look at your own life and say, Woe is me. I'm broken. I am lost, I am without. Isaiah said, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. He was a prophet, 
His best quality were his lips, his vocal cords, his mouth. He was a pundit, but he said, woe is me, even my best is bad. I am a man of unclean lips, and I come from a people of unclean lips. We're all in trouble. And here's what happens, guys. God meets you in your mess. By the way, that is what God does. God always meets you in your mess. That is what we call the incarnation of God, that God always comes down to where we are. That's what God in flesh, Jesus in sarke, in flesh means. It means that God met us where we were, and God forgives you. And he'll always do that. And remember what we said. Why do you become generous after an experience of the gospel? We said, well, it's because you can afford to be generous because now you have a different source of income that has paid you so well that you can release your money. It's called the grace of God. And grace begins to change everything. And so you see this. The believers were shaken by the weight of God. And look what it says. The result of this was that all the believers were in one heart and one mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. Notice this is the direct effect of this. But they shared everything they had. And it says, and with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And much what? Come on. There's that word. Much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them. For from that time to time, those who owned lands or houses, they sold them. And they brought the money from the cells and they put them at the leadership of the church, the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to everyone as they had need. Now, this is telling us, listen. This is telling us that one of the main ways which the world understood that Christians were different was their economic mindset. It was unmistakable, and it was tremendously powerful. And do you see the cycle of impact? It says that in, in the Word of God here, it says there was the combination of the preaching of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, but that was combined, again, graces upon them, so the combination of the preaching of the resurrection in grace says the result was they were of one heart and mind. No one claims any of his possessions as, as his own. They shared everything they had. And it was this combination of generosity and preaching that was the engine or the dynamic that began to change everything. Why? Because the message was backed up by the lives of the people. There was this unreasonable, unorthodox, tremendous generosity. How do you know that God has got a grip on your life? Well, one of the things is you'll see a remarkable overflowing of giving. And by the way, it's not that you're compelled to give by, by guilt. No, you want to give. You're overflowing with joy. Remember, we looked at that the second week. You're overflowing with a joy. Why? Because money is no longer your definition. Money is your dignity. You realize that God has given you a part of the world to take care of. And so with dignity, you want to be a part of that. You were created in God's image. So God says, I want you to use the resources I've given you, just like I made Adam to do that. Remember this from last week? And you're filled with a joy to do that. And that leads to where we are today. An enthusiastic stewardship to say, God, use my life.
God, use my life. Don't let me breathe another day without knowing that you are working through me, hand in glove. God, use everything that I have, my time, my talent, and yes, my treasure. I give it away. By the way, in case you don't believe me that this is what characterized the early church, I'll just say you see the same pattern in the book of Acts. For example, notice in uh, verse 44, you'll see it here, it says, all the believers were together and they had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to everyone as he had need. Isn't that powerful? They gave to everybody that had need. They were givers. In other words, the people on the outside looked at the church and they said, we don't get this. They said, nobody does this. Nobody's attitude toward their money is like this. And watch what happens. Because their attitude was like this, look at where it goes. It says they begin to meet together in temple courts. That is the public church. Remember, the very first believers were what religious group? What ethnic group? What were they? Jews. They were Jewish. So they're still meeting in the temple because that's where the Jews practice religion, except now they've come to Jesus. So they go to the temple and they're still meeting in temple courts. But it also says they broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Now watch this. What is the net return on being shaken up? It says... They were praising God and enjoying the favor of how many of the people? All the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Why? Because do you see how it works? When anybody on the outside realizes and they look at the Christian life and they see the generosity that's taking place. See, what happened? I just asked you the question. How did Rome, I asked you this in week one, how did Rome get turned upside down in 200 years that it became a Christian nation? How does that happen? It's remarkable, but I'll tell you how. It's because anybody on the outside that sees this looks and they say, boy, society would work a lot better if everyone had this attitude. That's what they say. You guys, politics can't, can't change the world like Jesus Christ can. Position can't change the world like Jesus Christ can. You can't, you can't policy this. Frankly, there are a number of political positions economically that could work if the heart of the human being was right. But people who have this attitude, people who believe, they begin to show people that there's a different way to, and there's something about the combination of the precinct of the resurrection with generosity that changes the world. Now, let me give you an idea of how this works, and this is how it should work in your life, because this is what I want you to be looking for. How do you know when the gospel's got a grip on your money? This is what you're looking for. You ready? Everybody say, I'm ready. Here we go. Let's take some notes. All right, here we go. Write this down. If you're ready online, just write, I'm ready. Get ready to take notes online. Here we go. First, here's what happens. The knowledge of this grace that I'm talking about, it begins to change your perspective. In other words, we begin to realize, as I've already said, how desperately we need God, that we're in trouble without him. I mean, this is why Jesus said, you remember in week two, Jesus said, blessed are the who? 
poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those that realize that they don't have it all together. When you realize your need, that's when you start to get a clue about life. But you need more than just a perspective change because a head knowledge is only going to take you so far. Now, guys, listen to me. You can't have less than a perspective change, but you must have more than a perspective change. So while the knowledge of grace gives me a change in my perspective, you've got to get to the next part, and that is this. Write it down. The experience of God's grace gives me a change in my personality. And this is where God actually begins to do his work. Now, by the way, it's not just in the earliest church that you see this. I mean, I want us to look at how Christians historically have existed. It's, it's amazing. In fact, I'll never forget my first sabbatical. I had been a pastor for a number of years here, and every seven years we get to take seven weeks of sabbatical. My first sabbatical, I was telling you know, the other pastors that I really wanted to read everything that the church fathers had written. So I got every book. The first 500 years of Christianity, I wanted to know what were the disciples like that the disciples discipled? And then what were their disciples like? And then what were their, I wanted to, like, what was the teaching? What did people believe and why did they believe it after it carried on from Scripture? And I came across the most amazing stuff as I'm reading through this. I came across a story. It was the year 252. There was this tremendous plague in Carthage. And it's one of the more interesting stories that have come down to us because all of the healthy people were leaving the city in droves because they had to get out because of fear of contamination. And so all the people, every ethnic group, and by the way, at this time in history, ethnic groups all live apart. Even if they're in the same city, they have walls that separate them. Christians, by the way, were the only ones that would break down the walls and say it doesn't matter from what race we come from. We all bend the knee to the same Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter if they were Jews or they were Greeks or they were African or whatever that they were, they were pagan. The fact is, is that they all surrendered to Jesus and so they said, we have this in common. But now all these other ethnic groups, they're leaving Carthage and they're losing everything they had because you know we've just gone through it. When you have a plague, you suffer financially, don't you? And there was this great Christian leader by the name of Cyprian, and he lived in Carthage, and he drew together all of the Christians at the center of that town. Now, by the way, this was a town that had persecuted Christians and hurt Christians and burned Christians alive and crucified Christians and killed their children and their families. Cyprian said, and let's just read what he wrote. He said, if we are going to do what Jesus did, who though he was rich, he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich, then I call on you now to fan out through this town and give both personal and financial aid and care to comfort all according to their need, not whether they are Christian or not. We are called here to follow what our master did. It is a fascinating story. They, every other group, abandons the city in the midst of a plague. Christians don't. Christians stay in the middle of the plague to care for the sick, to give people money. You know, another quote that you've heard me, I probably quote this about once a year since I learned it. It's one of my favorite quotes. It's a powerful, powerful piece of evidence that 
one of the early emperors, Julian of the Roman Empire, the emperor, the most powerful man in the world, he tried to stop Christianity by reviving the pagan religion, but he couldn't do it, and it bothered him so much, this emperor Julian. And in his disgust, he wrote one of his friends, and he's writing about why Christianity is succeeding and spreading, and look what he says. He says, their success lies in their charity to all because they not only take care of their own poor, but they take care of our poor too. You know why I quote that all the time? Because it's proof positive of this thing that I'm calling enthusiastic stewardship that differentiated Christians from anybody else. Because, see, Christians understood something that we need to understand today in America, and that's this, where Jesus himself says, here's here's the example, you are not to store up treasures on earth. This is not where you store your stuff, where moth and rust destroy them and where thieves break in and steal. No. Where do you store your treasures? In heaven. He says, in heaven where they won't be destroyed, where moth and rust can't take them away and thieves don't break in and steal. And notice he says what I quoted earlier. Let's read it together. Everyone with me. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. Guys, this is one of the things that befuddled the world. Why? Because let's say it again. The knowledge of grace gives you a change in your perspective. How you doing on that? You all right? The experience of grace gives you a change in your personality. Now, let me be clear again, guys. You could be religious but never have this. You could go to church your entire life and never have that. You could come to church and be a consumer, and you come to church with an attitude of, what is this church going to do for me? And you will live in church saying, what has this church done for me lately? And if you're here and you're a consumer, I want you to know, man, you're welcome here. Consume away. We want to provide and we want you to eat well and worship well. But I'm going to say, when you've had this change, you begin to say, God, use me. God, change my life. Because why? Because Christianity, you got to get this. Christianity, friends, is explosive. It'll blow up in your hand. And it wipes away what you already have. And the things that used to be so precious to you, they're just not that important anymore. Because you have him, and nothing compares to him. I'll never forget, I'm 17 years old. I'm a punk teenager. I know it's funny when I say things like this to you, but I was a punk teenager that used to get in fights all the time. And I know, yeah, you're like, you used to get beat up all the time. But let me, <laughs> let me just say it the way I like to say it. I used to get into fights all the time. And, uh, and I used to lift weights and play on the football team. I'm a small guy, but, you know, I was trying to compensate, lift weights and, and be all that. And I was on the wrestling team, and I was really into all this kind of stuff. And I'll never forget, when I'm 17 years old and I came to Jesus Christ, there was such, it blows up in your hands. There was such a transforming work that Jesus began to do in my life that suddenly, like, working out and going to the gym every day like I used to, that suddenly wasn't as important anymore. And I found that at the time I was supposed to be at the gym, I was reading my Bible. And I was spending time with Jesus. And you know what? I got to be honest. Because I was no longer into like body image and trying to be all, all this and all that, I noticed I actually started to gain some weight. It's like, wow, I became a Christian and I gained 40 pounds. Praise God. That's great. 
But I'm going to tell you guys why. Because there was this transforming work. Now, I like to go to the gym today. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. But I'm saying there is such a shift. And it changes your attitude. And so what you start to ask is, where do I begin, God? How do I get started? And you look at your money and say, how much can I give? Where could I give? Because the perspective of grace changes here. The experience of grace changes here. Now write this down because of the third part. You've got to get this. The model of Christ's grace, it begins to give you an actual rule of thumb so you can do it. And you say, well, what do you mean? I say, well, Jesus Christ gave everything. And his giving everything becomes a motor that drives you. Guys, that you want to give everything. I know some of you are saying, are you telling me I have to give everything? Yes. Welcome to Christianity. That's what it takes. You have to be willing to release everything to Jesus, not part of your life. Listen to me. He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Don't fool yourself. Don't think that that, well, I could just give part. I could just give this many dollars worth of God. No, no, no. He will invade every part of your life. How do you know Jesus is in your life? Well, how do you know an elephant's been in your house? How can you not know? It's going to mess up everything. It's going to rearrange the furniture. I've said that before. Now, guys, do you want to know why America's in decline? It's because the church is in decline. That's the truth. The church is in decline. There are more and more people that don't claim Christianity and those that do claim Christianity, for them it's a consumer mentality. Now, do you want to know what's interesting about Christianity more than any other major religion of the world? Any other religion of the world. This is a sociological and historical phenomenon, what I'm going to tell you. Christianity is the only religion of all the religions that migrates and moves all over the globe in its dominance. Did you know that? It started in the Middle East, but it's constantly moving. And if you look over the last 2,000 years, you find it moving all over the globe. Now, there's no other religion that does that. What is the chief religion in India right now? Hinduism, right? How about Thailand? What would you say? Buddhism. How about the Middle East? Islam. Now, I'm going to tell you, every major religion, the place that it was given birth to is the place of its dominance, and it continues to be that way with one exception, Christianity. Do you know why? Christianity is the only one that moves all over the globe, and the reason is this. Christianity flourishes in poor areas and declines in wealthy areas. Look at it statistically. Go research it yourself you find that where Christianity begins to decline are in the nations that are wealthy. Why? Because people get lazy. And they stop depending on God. And they may claim Jesus with their lips, but they serve other gods. You know, one of my favorite scriptures is, it's when God's talking to the people of Israel, and I almost think this could be a scripture for the nation of America right now. Because God says to the nation of Israel, notice this, it says, when you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, 
failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart, and this is a good description of us, it says, then your heart will become what? And you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. Now, by the way, that's exactly what capitalism says. But remember, the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers as it is today. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will be destroyed. Boy, that we would take that to heart. Friends, do you remember last week I said what we have to do to turn this around is we have to be Christians here in Fresno, California, here in the Central Valley of California. We have to be people that we take these principles and we work them into our life like you work chocolate chips into cookie dough. You've got to get it in there. You know, Martin Luther used to say, he was one of the key personalities behind the Protestant or Protestant Reformation. He used to wake up every day, and I love this quote, he'd say, God, you are my goodness. I was your punishment. You assumed everything I deserved and was, so I can receive everything you deserve and are. But then he used to pray this, and I love this. He would say, I am rich. I'm adopted into the family of God. I have an imperishable inheritance. I'm going to shine like the stars in the kingdom of my Father. Even now, his holy power and joy has come into my life through the Holy Spirit, and it has begun to grow. And it will eventually swallow up all of my foolishness and all of my sadness and all of my weakness. He would declare, I am what? Rich. And out of overflowing joy, when this starts to happen, you start to say, God, how can I be a part? I want to have dignity. What are you doing in the world? You've heard people say you can't take it with you, <laughs> but you can send it ahead. And you remember we said last week you actually can take it with you if you invest in heaven? You guys heard about the guy, I heard the story, kind of funny story about the guy that went to heaven and he saw all these big mansions in heaven, he's looking around and then he looks and he sees his little shack and he's like, is this where I'm supposed to live? Why do I have a little shack? And he says, well, because that's all the building material you sent ahead. Well, some of you, i got to say, what did it say? Matthew 6. Don't store up your treasures on earth, but what do we store? We store our treasures where? How? How do you do that? By investing in the people who are going to be there. That's how. Don't ever forget, friends, don't ever forget there are only two things that are going to last forever. What are those two things that are going to last forever? The Word of God and people. Everything else is going to burn up in judgment. But people, when you get to heaven, are people going to say that they are there because of you? 
Are people, when all things are made known, let me ask you, when everything is made known, are people going to say, because you gave to that missionary fund that caused that missionary to come and tell me about the Lord, I'm here because you gave. Are they going to be able to say that? Are people going to be able to say, you gave for a building fund to build a building that built the church that I was able to come to church and I'm in heaven because of you? Will they be able to say that? I'm just asking. You know, you guys know I've been bragging about how I really believe we're going to have, uh, we are going to build, we are going to renovate, and we are going to have the best cafe in the city of Fresno. Clovis, Central Valley. I'm not kidding you. We are. And it's going to be so good. And the reason for that is because it changes lives. Now you say, well, how does, how does this change lives? Because I'm going to tell you, when you create an environment where people who would not go to church will come on your campus for other reasons, they actually will come for other reasons. You know, it's really funny because I was sharing with our administrative leadership team who is kind of like an advisory board to the pastors, especially to me. And I'm picking their brain, and I'm asking them some questions and stuff. So I start walking them around to show them kind of future vision things that we'd like to do, because they represent you. And so I'm just kind of showing them. And so I'm kind of giving them, and I wish I could show you pictures. I'm pressing the architect just to give you some concept, because it's an amazing stuff. But I can't do that yet. So if, if you want the name and number of the architect, I'll give it to you later. You can, you can email. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. But, uh, but it's going to be amazing. Well, well, we're walking around, and one of the people on that team was telling me, see, Cross City, way out in Clovis, they actually have done this. They're, they're about five years in the making. They built this place called the Frap House. And uh, she, this person is a banker, and they're uh, having a business meeting, and so that person suggests, well, let's go over to the Frap House and have our business meeting. Well, one of the people who works at the bank is a Sikh woman who said, I will not go to a church. You cannot make me go to a church. She wanted nothing to do with going to a church. But don't you love peer pressure? Because, because then the other person, oh, it's not, a, it's not, it's a cafe. It's on the church grounds, but it's actually a place where you can go and you just have coffee. Don't worry about it. You know, go, okay, I'll go. You know, I love peer pressure. So they go. Well, anyway, they experience this incredible environment during this business meeting and stuff. They get served, well, and they just see people having a good time and talking and everything. Well, anyway, uh, that coworker of this banker now has gone back for the last four weeks in a row, every week, is now studying there, and now she comes back and she goes, I love this place so much. There's something about the environment here. I just can't get it. So this person, this Sikh woman, turns to uh, the person who runs the cafe, and I know that person, so he's telling me a little bit of the story, turns to that person and says, what is it about this place that it's like this? And the guy who runs the cafe looks and goes, well, Jesus is in every cup of coffee. <laughs> Just like that. <laughs> well, well, this, it, 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 I, can't, I don't know if I've called it a cafe here or not, but it's actually a coffee shop. It's not a cafe, it's a coffee shop. Right, Pastor Kyle? All right, you got me. I owe him a dollar every time I say the wrong thing. So if you repeat this name, buddy. It's, it's going into the fund, right? There it is. So guys, the funniest thing about this woman this, is that she goes to this place, and she's been going every four weeks, and now at work, she liked that joke so much that Jesus is in every cup of coffee that now she's been, she said it's their, their daily joke at work. Hey, you know what he told me? Jesus is in every cup of coffee. Now you've got a Sikh woman preaching Jesus in the place of business. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's the purpose behind that? Let me show you something. 
Because you say, well, this is superficial. Well, let me just say, guys, well, let's just look at what Jesus said. Very interesting scripture here. Jesus said, I tell you, make friends for yourselves using what? So that when those riches are gone, you will be welcomed in those homes that what? Continue. What's Jesus saying there? He's saying use worldly goods to reach people so that they will go to the place that continues how long? Forever. And that's what we do. Why? Because there's two things. Why do we want to proclaim the gospel? Because there's two things that will last forever. The word of God, the gospel, and people. And so we invest in that. So all I want to do in this remaining time very quickly is I want to answer two questions for you. Okay? Spent a lot of time talking about the process in the heart. I just want to answer two quick questions. Where do you give and how do you give? Because we're talking about stewardship. So let me take a minute. I've touched on these throughout the weeks, but I'm going to teach them more thoroughly. Where do you give? How do you give? I'm going to go in reverse order. How do you give? And then we'll finish with where you give. Sound good? All right, here we go. If I could just say it to you this way, okay? When you think about how you give. Before you have an experience of grace, our giving tends to be, write this down, it tends to be passive, and it tends to be spontaneous, if you'd write that down. It tends to be passive, and it tends to be spontaneous. Now, passive, I mean passive because insofar as we really do feel like this is my money, so if somebody wants my money, they better come and ask for it. They're going to need to come and get it, and so we'll wait to be asked. But we know, you know and I know, we're not looking for ways to get rid of it. And we typically will say to ourselves, well, I don't have that much of it. And we sort of wallowing in self-pity about it. And we feel really possessive about it. And so we're passive. Now, we're passive until somebody comes along and tugs on our, our guilt strings. And then we feel guilt. And so, you know, as soon as our guilt strings get tugged, we immediately and spontaneously will give. Which means... You might give whatever cash is in your wallet. You might give or something easy like that. You just say, well, how much do I have? I guess I can afford this much. You take it out, you give it. But your giving tends to be what? What are the words? And? But here's the difference. After you've experienced grace, you want to be totally different than that. Instead of being passive and spontaneous, you become active and you become intentional about your giving. Active and intentional. By the way, you know what I thought of when I thought of active and intentional? I thought of, do you remember Charles Dickens' Scrooge? You guys remember that? I figured we're close enough for Chris to Christmas that I can use this. Is that okay? I'm also going to decorate my house right before Thanksgiving. Don't judge me. We're getting closer to Christmas here. Of course, when I think of Scrooge, I think of this movie. How many of you have seen this one? Bill Murray's Scrooge. Because I'm a child of the 80s. And then what I really think of is the best is right here. How many of you guys remember that one? How many agree that that is the best version? There you go. Well, what is Scrooge? Scrooge is a miser. And because Scrooge is a miser, Scrooge is miserable. The root word of miserable is miser. But something happens to Scrooge, if you know the story. After grace, by the way, we're not even talking about the grace of God. He just experiences the grace of a second chance. And then you look at him after, 
And he's looking for ways to get rid of his money. He's proactive. He's intentional. He's planning. He's scheming. He thinks about it constantly. You make plans. By the way, what is tithing? Tithing is planned giving. It is saying I'm going to set aside a tenth, a tithe. A tithe means a tenth. We've said before. And you want to give away your money. Why? Because of the dignity that you want to be used by God. And it's awesome. And it's crazy to see how it affects your attitude. Did you know this is the coolest thing? This is the, I know I'm going long, but this is so good. Look at this scripture right here. If you'd go to this next one. Proverbs says, it is possible to give away and actually become what? It is also possible to hold on tightly and to what? Yes, it says. The generous man shall be rich by watering others. He waters himself. Now listen, this is the principle that is taught over and over again in the scripture. In order to live abundantly, you've got to give abundantly. Now, let's talk about tithing again, because tithing involves planning. It is an intentional step of giving. It means, again, I plan to give 10% of my income to the church. Now, let me be clear, because there have been a lot of small groups talking about this. I've had emails. I've had questions. It's great. I love the questions. Great discussion. Some people, first of all, struggle with 10%, legitimately, and I understand can I just encourage you, if you legitimately look and say there is no way I can be responsible steward and pay 10%, then here's my advice to you. You ready? Write this down. This is a good piece of advice. Pick a percentage with the aim of growing obedience. In other words, if you know that God says 10%, but you've worked out the math and a plan, intentional giving, you've said, man, I can do 6%, then you start with 6% but you do it with a plan of growing obedience. But here's what I want to say to you. Don't fool yourself either. Because some of us say we can't do it, and what you mean by that is you don't want to give up something else to do it. And you've let something get in the way of your obedience to God. You've heard of, how many of you heard of cirrhosis of the liver? Come on, show me. Who's heard of it? Some of you have cirrhosis of the giver. And, and if you're going to learn to give, you're going to be a very happy person. You start to say, look at what he's done for me. Look at how God planned to give for me. I'm going to plan to give. How do you know the gospel's got a grip on your life? You know what's interesting, by the way, to me, if I could just press this for another second. The way most people are at giving if you are spontaneous and passive, then you don't care about what I'm saying right now. You are sitting there right now and you are thinking, whatever. But if you are intentional and you're planning, then you want to hear about how to tithe. You want me to tell you how to, how to make it happen because you want to be intentional. Now, some of you, you're just following culture. You're saying, oh, whatever I feel like giving to, that's what I'm going to give to. No, no, that's not the way you do it. That's how culture does everything. I'm going to sleep with who I feel like sleeping with. I'm going to be married to who I feel like being married with. Listen to me. You're defined by your commitments. That's what defines who you are. You are your commitments. What are you committing to and seeing through? That takes virtue. That takes character. So pick a percent with the aim of growing in obedience to God. Some of you need to start at 10%. 
Pastor Steve would say, you swing for the fences because you know you can. But let me finish with this. Where do you give? Because that's been a big topic that's come in over the last couple of weeks. Where do you give? That was the second question, right? I want to mention three things that are pretty clear in Scripture. You're going to find these things that God says are important. If you're going to stay faithful, it's the way to live. God-honoring, God-fearing, grace-filled kind of life. The first place of where you give, I've already said it several times every week, it's obvious, it's a tenth, and that's called what? Tithing. There's the tithe. Now, you see the tithe in the Old Testament, and you see it in the New Testament, affirmed and described. People say, well, I see it more in the Old Testament. Well, that's true, but you see, Jesus affirms it in the New. He watches what people give, and he affirms it. He says, you should give that. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm coming up with right doctrine and a right practice for living, all I do is go to Jesus. And I look at how he said we should live. A lot of people argue about this. I just say no. See, some people, it's like they're like, well, dude, I don't have to give 10%. And I, I, again, I said this last week, but I'm going to say it to you again. Are you more blessed or less blessed than the people of the Old Testament? You're more blessed. Have you received more mercy in Christ in the New Testament or less mercy? More. Are you more indebted to God through what Jesus did on the cross for you than they were in the Old Testament? More, all the way down. So why then do we say, well, I can do less? It doesn't even make logical sense. It's inconceivable that we would approach it that way. No. No. You say, I'm going to choose. 10% should be a minimum. You say, well, then how far do we go? By the way, the people of Israel didn't just give 10%. We focus on that. Do you know if you counted up all their giving, it would have been more like 33% of their income. If you've ever studied it, you'd know what I said is true. They gave regularly more like 33% because they gave beyond the tithe. To spread the word of God and for people. So there's the tithe, 10%. That goes to your church. But then there's something else. There's what I'd call beyond the tithe. And what is beyond the tithe? Beyond the tithe are the immediate needs that reflect the heart of God that are timeless For example, the poor that are in front of you, that you could do something about, the people, the agencies that work with the poor and the homeless. How about this? Orphans. Pure and undefiled religion is this, to look after orphans and take care of widows. By the way, there's a third group, widows. You take care of people. And by the way, your church is involved in all of these. Did you know that outside of the command to be saved and believed in Jesus and to believe in Jesus Christ, there's no other command that is more frequent in the Bible than to take care of the poor? Take care of the poor. Take care of the poor. Look after the poor. Do justice for the poor and the needy. Got to do it. And then there's a third category. There's the tithe. There's beyond the tithe. And then there's a third category that we give to. And this is what I'd call your passion giving. This is where you want to give. Now, a lot of people, they only go there, and they think that that's their tithe, and it's not. That's not your tithe to the place of worship. People give to Caleb, and they say, I'm tithing to Caleb. 
No, that's called passion giving. I also support Caleb, but I tithe too. There's, there's, I, I support missionaries in Arizona, people that come out of this church and they're doing work with youth, group, uh, youth uh, in the schools in Arizona. I give to that. Why? Because it's a passion of mine. I want to support what they're doing. But that's not my tithe. That's separate from my tithe. You see what I'm talking about? Why? Because in the Christian, there is remarkable generosity that comes from an overflowing joy. By the way, this whole month, I'm just giving you a four-point message, a remarkable generosity that comes from an overflowing joy that leads to an enthusiastic stewardship. And next week, you know what we're going to talk about? How it's all done with radical faith. It's an expression of faith and trust. And I can't wait till next week to tell you about some faith things that we're going to get into together. Sound good? Let me pray with you. Father, thank you for every man and woman that's here every young man, every young woman, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would fill them with your power and your glory, that Jesus, that you would help us to be the men and the women that you've called us to be, to give like you've given. It's what it means in part to be made in your image. So we surrender ourselves to you. If there's anyone here that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, as we've talked about money, because our treasure is where our heart is, capture the heart. Fill them and lead them. We pray it in Jesus' precious name. Everyone said, amen, amen. I'm gonna give it back to our host. God bless you guys.